The Wars of the Roses is one of those events or periods in English history that many of us have heard about, but actually we don't really know very much about what they were about, or who was fighting who, or what happened. Today, that's all going to change. In this talk, I'm going to give you an overview of uh, when they happened, the background to why they happened, and actually what happened in the Wars of the Roses. <laughs> Believe you me, this is one of the most complex and intriguing periods in English history. And it changed England, and ultimately Britain, forever. So, let's start with some real top-line information. Uh, the Wars of the Roses were a dynastic dispute within the ruling Plantagenet family. This erupted into a civil war in England between 1455 and 1485. And it pitted two rival parts of that family, the House of Lancaster and the House of York. They're known as the Wars of the Roses because of the emblems adopted by the two sides, the White Rose of York versus the Red Rose of Lancaster. Although, interestingly, they were not actually known as the Wars of the Roses at the time, or indeed at any time until the 19th century, when the term was coined by the novelist Sir Walter Scott. So, what was the war all about? Well, quite simply, it was about who should wear the crown of England within the Plantagenet family. The Plantagenets were the, the longest royal house, longest reigning royal house in English history. 331 years. And we have come across them in our previous talks, haven't we? They came to power in England in 1154, when Henry II succeeded King Stephen. The Plantagenets were not just the longest-serving royal family, but they were a pretty dysfunctional one too. Henry II's own sons, including Richard the Lionheart and King John, rebelled against him. So you get the idea, you know, the Plantagenets were not a happy family. They had, as the police might say, form when it came to dynastic quarrels. And it all came to a head when Edward III finally died in 1377. The crown passed to the only child of his dead eldest son, the boy king, Richard II. However, Richard was usurped by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, whose father was John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, the third son of Edward III. And thanks to that title, Duke of Lancaster, we have the House of Lancaster, headed up by, now, Henry Bolingbroke. Now, those of you who might have watched my talk on the Peasants' Revolt might recall that Henry Bolingbroke was almost killed by the mob when they stormed London and the Tower of London. Yet how history might have been completely different if that had happened. But as it was, in 1400, he starved cousin Richard II to death and was crowned King Henry IV. His son was Henry V of Agincourt fame, and his son was Henry VI, who represented the House of Lancaster when the Wars of the Roses broke out. Meanwhile, the descendants of Edward III's second and fourth sons had actually intermarried later on, and their, their combined child was Richard, Duke of York, who founded the House of York. And Richard of York believed that, uh, first and foremost, Henry, Henry VI was a poor king under the influence of a small clique of nobles who were on the make. And secondly, and far more importantly, he actually had a stronger claim to the throne, which arguably he did. Initially, he seems to have just wanted the removal of that clique, advising the king. But over time, this turned into a greater ambition to rule, to wear the crown himself. Now, I apologise, we're going at a fair gallop here. 
Yeah, I've delivered a series of talks in the past which go into a lot more detail and they combined took over three hours to explain what happened in the Wars of the Roses. And even then, I think that we, I left a whole lot of loose ends. However, the aim of this talk is not to make you an expert on the Wars of the Roses. This is more of a, a 10,000 foot view, just so you understand what the Wars of the Roses were about and how they fit into that, that wider story of Britain. So in the 1450s, Henry VI, head of the House of Lancaster, had the first of a series of mental breakdowns. And a Regency Council was set up uh, to run the country while he was ill. And Richard of York became the Lord Protector of England. So here we had the man who had his eyes on the crown was now sort of de facto ruler of England. Then Henry recovered and urged on by his wife, Margaret of Anjou, who wanted to make sure that their son, Edward Prince of Wales, was wearing the, throat, uh, wearing the crown and not Richard of York. He contemplated declaring Richard a traitor. And it was at that minute that Richard decided that the time for talking was over, especially as his life seemed to be on the line. And he raised an army and marched on London. The king now had to take some sort of action to protect his throne and his son's inheritance. So he raised his own army and marched out to meet the rebel Yorkists. And on the 22nd of May, 1455, they met at the ancient town of St. Albans, which is about 20 miles north of London. And there, in the narrow streets of the market town, the war started. A daring attack by Richard of York's ally, the Earl of Warwick, broke into the town, surprising the Lancastrian army, who were having a bit of a rest, and presented Richard of York with the first victory of the Wars of the Roses. It also presented him with King Henry VI, who was suffering another mental breakdown and had been deserted by his soldiers in St Albans. So he was now Richard of York's prisoner. This was a really delicate moment for Richard of York. Yet Henry VI was maybe a rubbish, but he was the anointed and crowned king. And Richard of York's army had been raised on the, the lines of reform, not taking over the kingdom for Richard. So Richard uh, once more established a regency council with himself as Lord Protector to run the country, but the king was still in place. But he did manage to kick that clique around the king out of power. However, Within a year, the king's faculties had returned. And once more, the regency was ended. And once more, Richard lost his powerful role as Lord Protector. The clique returned. And together with Henry VI's wife, Margaret, they were out for revenge. In 1459, they added pressure to the king to declare Richard of York a traitor. And this time he did so. Any hope that Richard had of pursuing a peaceful resolution was now gone. Once more, he gathered his army, this time at Ludlow in the Midlands. He urged the Neville family, his allies, to bring troops that they had up in Yorkshire down to him. Margaret of Anjou attempted to prevent the two forces joining together. And she tried to intercept uh, the, the Nevilles who were coming down from Yorkshire at a place called Bloor Heath, outside Market Drayton in Shropshire. However, they, they were defeated. So another victory to Richard of York. However, Henry marched with his army on Ludlow. And Richard's force began to desert when they saw the king arriving. And Richard of York, despite having those two victories, had to flee into exile. The Wars of the Roses was like a heavyweight boxing contest um, or maybe a classic tennis match. You know, one side was on top, then the other side was on top, and then back again, and so on. And so it was that despite the Yorkists, you know, winning those first two battles of the Civil War, the House of Lancaster were now on top. But that all changed the following year, 1460. Richard's teenage son, Edward, and the Earl of Warwick, 
landed in England from, from Calais, uh, the English, last English possession in France, if you remember, and they were welcomed in London as heroes. London was very much a Yorkist town, supporting town. Moving north, they met the king and his army at Northampton, and thanks to some treachery, they won this battle, and once again, Henry VI was captured and taken prisoner. He was taken to the Tower of London, and Richard of York persuaded Parliament finally to pass an act which said that he, Richard, would be Lord Protector for the rest of Henry's life, and that when Henry died, the throne would pass to Richard and his heirs rather than to Henry's son. Richard's hands were tantalisingly close to holding that crown of England, but he'd reckoned without Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou. There was no way she was going to let Richard take the throne that her son should be inheriting. She fled to Scotland with her son, where she convinced the king to supply her with soldiers. And with this new Scottish army, she crossed the border and headed to York. English Lancastrian supporters flocked to the ancient northern city to join her. Richard had to act really fast, so he marched his army north ASAP. And on the 30th of December 1460, he met the Lancastrian forces at the Battle of Wakefield. Now, I said that the Wars of the Roses were, were like a pendulum, you know, going backwards and forwards, and so it was at Wakefield. Richard metaphorically fell at the last jump. He lost the Battle of Wakefield, and in, in the process, he lost his life. Margaret had his cut, head cut off and displayed on a pike on the city walls of York. Everything for the House of York had come crashing down. Their hopes now rested on his teenage son, Edward, who was still in the family lands down in Ludlow. And within weeks, he faced his own crucial challenge. Meanwhile, Margaret was marching south from Wakefield uh, and she defeated the Earl of Warwick at the Second Battle of St Albans, rescuing King Henry in the process. Everything was turning out very nicely for the Lancastrians. And at that moment, a Lancastrian army marched out of Wales to finish off Edward at Ludlow. Despite being only 18 years of age, Edward defeated them at the Battle of Mortimer's Cross. And with that victory under his belt, he now marched to relieve London, which was still loyal to the Yorkist cause and which had shut its doors in Margaret's face. Margaret withdrew north and Edward set off in pursuit. On Palm Sunday, 1461, Edward won the largest and bloodiest battle ever fought on English soil at a place called Toton in Yorkshire, uh, not far from uh, the town of Tadcaster. And whilst King Henry and Margaret were able to escape from, from the Battle of, of Towton uh, again to Scotland, their calls had been blown out of the water. Everywhere, former Lancastrian supporters submitted to Edward. And in June of that year, 1461, he was crowned King Edward IV at Westminster Abbey. Now we have a slightly awkward situation here in England where we had two crowned kings of England at large. Once more, Margaret of Anjou regrouped the Lancastrians and Henry with the Duke of Beaufort invaded the north of England. And once more they were defeated, this time at Hexham, and Henry was forced on the run and he was finally captured early the following year in Lancashire. Yet again, Henry was removed to the Tower of London. So at least we had, well, we still had two kings of England, but one of them was in the Tower of London, one of them was in control of England. Over the next few years, our relations between Edward IV and his staunchest ally, Warwick, deteriorated. Not least because Warwick disapproved of the new king's secret marriage to a commoner, Elizabeth Woodville, and the elevation of her minor family 
into the halls of privilege and power. By 1470, things had come to a head and Warwick rebelled against Edward, his ally and relation. He freed Henry from captivity in London and paraded him through London as the rightful King of England. This sudden turn of events caught Margaret of Anjou on the hop. Uh, she was over in France raising an army to free her husband, who Warwick had now freed in London. Warwick could really do with her, her soldiers in England because Edward and his younger brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, were on the warpath. But time was not on Warwick's side. Edward was marching on London and Warwick was forced to march out to meet him without Margaret's valuable reinforcements. In April 1471, at the Battle of Barnet, Warwick the Kingmaker's luck finally ran out. He died as his army was stunningly defeated. Once more, poor old Henry VI was bundled off to the Tower of London. Ironically, on the very same day as the Battle of Barnet, Margaret of Anjou finally landed in the southwest of England with her army. Realising that her army was too small to take on the victorious Edward, it would have been all right if she'd had Warwick on her side, um, she, um, she rushed north to try to join the Lancastrians' most loyal supporter based in Wales, a man called Jasper Tudor. Together, their two armies would match, uh, would, would, would match Edward's. And Edward was all too well aware of this danger, and he raced to intercept Margaret before she could cross the River Severn and enter Wales. And Edward caught up with her army at Tewkesbury. The Battle of Tewkesbury was a decisive victory for Edward IV and the House of York. Henry's son and heir, Edward, Prince of Wales, was killed and Margaret was captured. She was processed in a caged wagon as Edward paraded in triumph through the streets of London. And on the night of his triumphant entry into London, Henry VI died in the Tower of London. Most accounts say he was murdered on Edward's orders. Now, there was just one king of England. And the House of Lancaster, well, they basically ceased to exist. Their king was dead, their queen was exiled to France, and the only son and heir was also dead. The closest male relatives by blood to King Henry, the last two men in the Beaufort family, the illegitimate offspring of John of Gaunt and a longtime lover called Catherine Swinford, had died fighting for the Lanc their Lancastrian kin on the battlefield at Tewkesbury too. And meanwhile, Edward IV had a son, he had a daughter, and he had another son on the way. He also had two brothers who had also produced sons. The House of York was stuffed with male heirs, and they reigned supreme. There was hardly a cloud in the sky, but there was one solitary cloud, the long shot of the Lancastrians. But it was the only shot they had. Far away in Brittany, a 14-year-old Welsh nobleman with no battle experience was living in exile with his uncle, Jasper. He was the great-great-great-grandson of King Edward III. His claim to the throne was shaky at best. His mother, Margaret Beaufort, had given birth to him when she was just 13. And by then, she was already a widow of two months. Her husband, 13 years her senior, had died of the plague whilst a prisoner at the very outset of the Wars of the Roses, fighting for the Lancastrians. And this young 14-year-old exile's name? Henry Tudor. But for the next 14 years, he wasn't uh, about to amount to very much in history, and he may never have. If Edward had lived to a ripe old age, 
or Richard had had more support, things might have been different. If Lord Stanley and the Earl of Northumberland had acted differently at, ba at the Battle of Bosworth Field, history may have been very different. But as it was, in 1483, Edward IV suddenly died. He was just 42. Um, there's no evidence of foul play, strangely enough, in the Plantagenets. It was just one of those things. No one saw it coming. And why should they? His father, Richard of York, had reached 49 before he was actually killed in battle. Edward III had died in his 60s. You know, it's one of those what-if moments in English history. What if Edward IV had lived another, say, 20 years into his 60s? Would Henry Tudor have even bothered to challenge him? And assuming he lived to his 60s, when he died, his eldest son would have been in his 30s and wouldn't have needed his uncle to be the protector. And we find out in a minute just how that turns out. But the reality, not the what if, the reality was Edward IV was dead. And his son, Edward V, was a teenager. And so his uncle, Richard of Gloucester, became Lord Protector of England. In the interest of time, uh, I don't want to dwell on, on this chapter of England's royal history, uh, although I do in my, my series of talks on the Wars of the Roses. Because Uncle Richard, Duke of Gloucester, put the young king and his brother in the Tower of London for safekeeping, and then announced that his brother's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was illegal, and therefore the new king, Edward V, was illegitimate, and therefore he couldn't be the king. There was an obvious alternative, however. Richard. And so Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was crowned King Richard III of England. And his two nephews? Well, they were never seen again. And so we have that tantalising mystery of what happened to the princes in the tower. Richard gets a bad press from history, not least because William Shakespeare made sure that he did. Certainly, he was as not as popular as his brother, Edward IV. And the fact that he had done some sort of pretty fancy footwork to deprive his nephew of the crown and placed it on his own, own head didn't really help matters. Nor did the fact that the princes in the tower had, disagree had disappeared on his watch. All of this gave Henry Tudor a window of opportunity that he, he really probably shouldn't have ever been presented with. And it really was an incredible window of opportunity. At the midpoint of Edward IV's reign, the male line of the House of York comprised of, well, King Edward himself, his two sons, his brother, the Duke of Clarence, and his son, and finally his younger brother, Richard, Duke of York, and his son. And the male line of the House of Lancaster consisted of Henry Tudor. And even his line was somewhat dubious, as it seems that Henry IV, way back, had, in his will, had actually said the Beauforts were not in the line of succession. But fortunately for Henry Tudor, that was never made law by Parliament. And now, in 1485, everything was about to change. Edward was dead. His two sons had disappeared from the Tower of London. Uh, the Duke of Clarence, his middle brother, was dead. And Richard, uh, Richard's own son, Richard III's own son, was dead too. The House of York only had Richard left, plus um, the Duke of Clarence's infant son. And he'd been barred from succession because his father had died a traitor. Henry Tudor seized his opportunity, and in 1485 he landed at the head of a tiny army in his native Wales. Marching east, he met Richard's army at, at Bosworth Field in Leicestershire on the 22nd of August. It was a winner-takes-all battle. Richard III's force was at least twice the size of Henry Tudor's, and as the two armies stared at each other, Lord Stanley arrived with 3,000 men. 
Now, Stanley was the great survivor of the Wars of the Roses, and he was in a really interesting position. He was one of Richard's key advisors, but he was also married to Henry Tudor's mother, Margaret Beaufort. So who would Stanley join? Richard sent a command for his advisor to come and join him, and also reminded him that he held one of his sons as a hostage, just in case he suddenly decided to support his, uh, his, his wife's son. Meanwhile, Henry sent a plea to his stepfather. Nothing happened. Stanley led his troops to a point almost on the halfway line beyond a marsh. And there, the 50-year-old Lord Stanley and his younger brother waited to see how events would unfold. Yeah, I always wonder, what would Margaret Beaufort have thought if she'd been there at that minute, seeing his, 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 his antics? Henry Tudor's rebels, under the command of the Earl of Oxford, advanced uphill towards Richard. There ensued a fierce hand-to-hand -hand fight between the leading formations of both armies. And still, the Stanleys waited on the sidelines. Richard then ordered the Earl of Northumberland to advance with his reserve uh, and bring his men to the front line. Northumberland refused. But what should have been a reasonably easy victory for Richard III was starting to get a little bit out of control now. Henry chose this moment to ride over to Lord Stanley, his stepfather, with one final plea to come into the battle on his side. And Richard III spied the young rebel moving with his bodyguard across the open ground near the marsh. This was going to be a winner-takes-all contest. If Henry died, there was no more Lancastrian cause. If Richard died, the Plantagenet line was almost extinguished and Henry Tudor would be the king. Richard charged with his knights towards Henry. Richard and his men ploughed into Henry's party. Henry's standard bearer, carrying the red Welsh dragon, was cut down. Henry's bodyguard had to form up and surround their man in a last-ditch attempt to protect their lord as Richard III's knights cut their way through. The gamble almost paid off for Richard. And then, with the thundering of hooves, he heard the Stanleys committing themselves. And it wasn't to his campaign. They charged into the side of Richard's men, and there in the marsh... Richard III was unhorsed. Surrounded by Stanleys and Tudors, he fought like a demon, a real Plantagenet warrior, like Richard the Lionheart, like Edward I, like Edward III, until finally he was struck down. Seeing the king, seeing the king uh, uh, killed, the royal army broke. Henry Tudor had won the Battle of Bosworth. Richard's body was stripped naked, it was slung over a horse and taken back to Leicester for public display to show that he was dead and then buried in a pauper's grave. Uh, amazingly, his body was actually discovered in an archaeological dig in 2012 and is now buried in Leicester Cathedral. By the Walls of the Roses standards, the casualties at Bosworth Field were actually very low. Estimates suggest that Henry Tudor lost 200 men and Richard lost maybe 1,000. But it was the political result that mattered. The death of Richard signalled the end of the Plantagenet dynasty. Henry Tudor became King Henry VII of England, the first of a new royal dynasty, the Tudors. A royal dynasty every bit as famous and intriguing and impactful on history as the Plantagenets. But that, as they say,